Grab out your Bible. It's something to take some notes with today. Uh, we are finishing up our Letters from Prison series. Today is the last of this particular book. We started in the book of Philippians. And we'll bring this series back probably next year and the year after. We're going to go through a lot of these letters that Paul wrote. But we started it in the book of Philippians. And so we're walking step by step through this book, verse by verse, learning this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, and honestly to the church as a whole in this book. And it's important to notice, and it's probably, you've got this by the title of the series, that Paul is in prison as he writes these letters. And so Paul is sitting in prison in, in this Rome, waiting to give his, uh, kind of his reasons before Caesar. He's, he's supposed to give his, his soliloquy. It's honestly, for Paul, this is just his waiting period before he's going to give his reasons for being captive before Caesar. But he's writing these letters in this circumstance, in prison, to the churches and Philippians, he writes about keeping your joy in every circumstance. So we talked about this in week one, that Paul honestly should have written this letter. Or it should have been a letter written to him. He should have received a letter about joy that the church wrote to Paul. Keep up your joy. But he's writing the letter. And so in week one, we looked at how you can have joy in every circumstance. How the, the circumstances of your life should not dictate the joy in your life. That was chapter one. Chapter two, and in week two, we learned about how we should keep our joy no matter what people do. And so Paul is writing about these, these people who are trying to get him in trouble, even in Rome. Even after he's in prison, they're still trying to get his head cut off. Christians in Rome, he says, that people who have shown themselves by their actions to actually be enemies of the cross. And so Paul is saying, even when people hate you, you can have joy. And he goes a step further, not just you could have joy. He says we should be examples and lights to those around us, even in the midst of that. That was week number two. And so then last week, Paul talked about religiosity, about piety in chapter three. How religiousness can keep us from having joy. And so today we're in chapter 4. If you want to open up your Bibles, of course, we'll have it on the screens. If you want to pull up the app, we have the fill-in-the-blank version of all the verses and the notes that we're going to talk about today. But as we close out the series, Paul hits us right in the eyes as Americans. Honestly, he hits us with a two-by-four right in the eyes as he closes out this letter. And he deals with the last thing, and that is our possessions. That is the stuff that we have. So chapter 4, verse 12, just to kind of set up where we're going. We do this. We go to the end, and then we'll kind of walk our way towards it this morning. But chapter 4, verse 12, Paul says this. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. We're going to kind of weigh this today, because I think there is a balance that a lot of times we are missing. We're either on one side or the other. He says, I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. Watch this. I have learned. And honestly, this week, it was like I was reading this verse for the first time. Because watch what he says here. He says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and facing hunger. That's not a mentality I think that any of us have ever had in our life. That I know the secret of how to face plenty. Like it's some obstacle that I need to overcome. I know how to face having too much. I know how to face being blessed. I know how to face having too much in my life. And I think sometimes we err towards one side and we don't realize the pitfalls of the other. We err towards the side. We say, okay, we need to learn how we could face to be brought low. We need to learn how to face hunger. We need to learn how to face need. But Paul's saying, I know how to face abundance and need. He says, I know how to face plenty. And I don't think it's a mentality that too many of us maybe have. I know I haven't had practice in our life or thought that we needed to learn. One of my favorite movies in the world is Fiddler on the Roof. I love that movie so much. All six of us, come on, we, we love that movie. 
And in it, at one of the points, our main character, Tevi, he's talking to this young revolutionary. And Tevi, honestly, he's a little, he's a little hungover in the morning. He just can't hear anything or understand anything in the morning. And this young revolutionary is trying to tell him that money is the world's curse. And Tevi says, then may the Lord strike me with it. Come on, somebody. And he says, and may I never recover. May I never. And honestly, I think, I think too many times we think about one side of this idea. But Paul is about to teach us just a little bit. Paul is about to teach us, honestly, I think like the church in Philippi, that we need to learn that maybe we've grown blind to the pitfalls of abundance. We've grown blind to the pitfalls of having all the things that we ever wanted. And so many times in life, it can keep us from living the life that God has called us to live. So we're going to jump into it. Now, verse number one of chapter four, Paul finishes up the thought from the last chapter. And then verses two and three, one of my favorite places in the Bible, Paul calls out two ladies in the church by name who are having an argument with one another. And Paul Paul calls them out by name and says they need to make up. They need to come together in the Lord. They need to do that. How many of you would like to be immortalized in scripture for a spat you had in church? Come on, somebody like you, like Paul, Paul gives their names. Paul does. I just think it's funny when you're looking at the early church has nothing to do with today. I just thought it was funny. So Paul calls them out, says they need to make up. They need to get their act together. Uh, And then in verse number four. After that, he says it again that he said all throughout the book. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And I'll say it again, rejoice. And so Paul is finishing his letter and he's saying, listen, there is something you should have joy in. And it's not your stuff. It's not your accomplishments. It's not people around you. It's not anything like he's saying there is joy to be had. And it's not in your car, your house or your cell phone, whatever it is. Paul is saying rejoice in the Lord. He's saying there is joy, but it's in the Lord. There is joy in our lives. And so he's setting up where he's about to go. But he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Now, just to kind of give you a background for this, the church in Philippi is like us in a whole lot of ways. And they are a blessed society he is writing to. They are a free society. They're Roman citizens. And so Paul's letter is crafted a little different in the way that he talks to them. And so they're a lot like us and they're blessed. And so I just want you to know a foundational principle for our finances. This is kind of before we get into the message as we talk about it today. I just want to kind of set the ground rules. And you can jot it down if you're taking notes. God doesn't mind you having stuff. What he does mind is your stuff having you. And there is a big difference. And we're going to talk a little bit about this because let me make it clear. We do not believe in a prosperity gospel here at Victory. And we do not believe in a poverty gospel here at Victory. I don't believe you have to be rich or poor to be spiritual. But as we walk through this chapter four and we're going to talk about this, Jesus made it very clear how difficult it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. How difficult it is for that. He says, with God, all things are possible. But he has already declared very clearly how difficult it is. And so Paul here is going to weigh this balance. And honestly, I think a lot of us are going to learn a whole lot from this chapter. This is something I think that hits us close, myself included. Because God blesses so many people. But the problem that arises is we don't finish that sentence. We just say God blesses people. God blesses his people. God just blesses. But God blesses his people so that we can be a blessing. God blesses his people so that we can then have the opportunity to be generous on every occasion. That we then have the opportunity to share the gospel to the four corners of the world. That God blesses his people to be a blessing. And sometimes we don't see the pitfalls of being blessed. And honestly, I think a danger that arises in my own life as well is this danger that's constantly growing to worship the blessing instead of the blesser. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that today, that God has put resources in the hands of his people. Not that we could somehow just grab everything we had. God has no problem getting stuff to us. Can he get it through us, everybody? 
Can he actually pass things to his people that we would then turn around and be a blessing to those around us? And listen, the other side is true as well. Sometimes God's blessings have nothing to do with money or stuff, things that he rains on us. But we have this mentality of, well, why did they get that? And why does so-and-so have that thing? And why didn't I get blessed in that way? Why does that, why can't I just have that? And we're looking around saying, I want that. Because it can be hard to realize sometimes that you don't have to have money to fall for the trap of money. Come on, somebody, you don't, you don't have to have it. We think it's just for rich people that have the love of money. You don't have to have any money at all to fall for the love of money. And we'll talk about that a little later in the thing. But Paul learns, I have learned, watch this back to our verse uh, before this one. He says, I have learned to have nothing. And he says that in verse four, in 13, he had said, I have learned to be content. He said, I've learned to be content. And so I can live my life knowing God can bless me if he chooses. But if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, that I know that if I don't have it, I don't need it to do what he's called me to do. That we have been called church. We have a purpose for our life. There is purpose on each and every one of us. And so if I don't have whatever it is I think I need, I know that God's purpose for my life. If I don't have it, I don't need it to do what he has called me to do. So Paul is talking, he wrestles with this issue in chapter four. It's an issue of the heart. What do we worship? What, what, what are we basing our lives on? Is it materialism? Because this message hits close for us as Americans. Because if we're honest for ourselves, there is this danger of worshiping the blessing. Honestly, there's this danger because life can be enjoyed. There, that's not what I'm saying in this message. I love life. I can enjoy life. But if your happiness and your joy is wrapped up in your possessions, if your significance or the way your security is wrapped up in the things that you have, then you're in for a world of trouble. If that's what you base your actual significance on and how much you can amass or what you can make or how far you can go in your profession, then you have set yourself up for pain. So we're going to talk about it. We're going to walk through some things Paul gives us to disconnect our identity from the things that we have. Verse number six is where we'll start. So then he says, don't worry about anything. So Paul is jumping into this idea. So the first thing he says is don't worry. So very deep, very deep uh, points today. First one is stop worrying. If we're going to disconnect ourselves from our possessions, we've got to stop worrying about the things. And Paul learned this from Jesus. This is something Paul loves to say throughout his, his sermons and his, his letters to the churches. But he says, stop worrying. Don't worry about anything. And so honestly, you would think this is a very simple thing. Okay, I'll just stop worrying. I'll just stop. But honestly, worry is a very, I would say, is an extreme symptom of a very deep spiritual issue. If you're stressed out and worried all the time, if all you can think about 24-7 is where your next thing is going to come from or where all these different incomes are, if you are stressed out all of the time, it's honestly a reflection of a deep spiritual issue. Because what you worry about the most reveals where you trust God the least. What you worry about constantly, the thing that your mind always wanders to, the thing you're always thinking about, that thing that you worry about the most, it reveals in your life what, you, where, what area you trust God the least in. Because if I'm always worried about my, what I'm going to do, my provision, or I'm always worried about my stuff or my income or my thing, then I'm not trusting God to be my provider. If I'm always worried about these things that are going to happen or the things that probably 95% of the time will never happen anyways, I'm not trusting that in God's hands. And so oftentimes our worry, if you want to pinpoint, say, where do I have some spiritual issues? Oftentimes you can find it in the areas that you worry about. And honestly, this is a sermon that I've had to preach to myself this entire week. That if my mind is constantly running, thinking about where is my provision going to come from? Or where is this going to come? If we're stressed out all the time, these things that are dominating our thoughts. And watch, Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 6. He says, stop worrying about these things. Don't worry about what will we eat and what will we drink and what will we wear. 
These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. So Jesus is saying, don't worry about all these things. This is what dominates the thoughts of unbelievers. But he says, but your heavenly father already knows all of your needs. An incredible thought. Say that with me. Your heavenly father already knows all of your needs. Pause for a moment and just think how incredible that thought is. That we don't go to God with our, with our prayers and thing and we're like, God, I just, I need that. I can't, I just, I have to, I need that. And God is like, I had no idea. Like, this is a big problem. Like, we have to fix it. I had no, I had no clue. We were, just, we were just playing ping pong up here. I had no idea you were doing, no idea. You, no, it says your heavenly father already knows your idea. He already knows your needs. And Jesus said, stop being stressed out about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, what you're going to think, all these things. Because that's what consumes the thoughts of unbelievers. And I can tell you right now, it's a trap. It is a trap. It's the constant push for more. I read a lot of articles, uh, I've read them in the past, I read some more this week, about materialism in America. About the rise of materialism and how it has looked. It's honestly, it would appear that by and large, the average American, by and large, we're about twice as blessed as we were 50 years ago. It, just on the average, if you look at it, twice as many cars, twice as big houses, twice as many times eating out, twice as blessed as we were 50 years ago. And so you would think that we would be happier, but actually the inverse is true. We have more stress, more anxiety, more unhappiness than has ever been present in our culture. That is on the rise. In fact, they looked at the highest wage earners, the ultra wealthy, and they said that anxiety and stress and unhappiness is running rampant among. And you would say, well, why is that? It's because they looked at the one deciding factor, the one thing that they could see, especially among overachievers, was this constant drive for more. This constant drive for more. And so it's this underlying theme. And honestly, I would argue it's been an underlying theme of our country for a long time. This idea that what you have is not good enough and so we need more. We got to have more. And so then it, it doesn't become about just having a house or having a car. It comes about, well, I got to have a bigger house and I got to have a better car. And I got to close this deal after this deal. And even when you don't need the money, I just need to make more and more and more. And even when you don't need something, having that drive, it's just got to be bigger and better. And I've got to have more. I've got to have more. And it has led to the most stress and anxiety and worry that we have ever seen among people. And so today we're going to talk a little bit about it because it's never enough. And honestly, it leads to stress and anxiety and depression. And the Bible said it thousands of years ago already. It's funny how society and culture just seems to catch up. Watch this in Ecclesiastes. He says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This is all meaningless. So the one who loves money is just never satisfied. It's this drive for more. It's this idea that I can't just have the one thing that I need. I need to have it bigger and better. I got to go for more. I got to have more. If your satisfaction and your security is wrapped up in this. Honestly, if your love is wrapped up in the love of money, it's a trap. Something that we're going after that will destroy you every single time. If money is your God, if things are your source of significance and security and satisfaction, it does not matter how successful you are. It will never be enough. And I think sometimes we fool ourselves because I've done it too. We say, well, they just don't know how to spend their money. If I had their money, I would, I, would know, I would know how to be happy with it. They just don't know how to do it, those rich people. They just don't know how to. It's a trap. Every, I don't care how successful you are. It will never be enough. It cannot satisfy. And we have fallen for the trap over and over and over again. And Paul is writing to this church in Philippi saying, I've learned to be content. Because I know that it won't satisfy. I could be content when I have nothing. I could be content when I have everything. It says it's not about your possessions. So I've learned to be content 
Don't care how successful you are. I had an opportunity uh, four or five years ago now to go with some guys from the church to a breakfast where the guest speaker was Charlie Duke, the astronaut, and one of the ten who walked on the moon, youngest man to ever walk on the moon, credible man of God, incredible testimony. And he gave his testimony and he said how he went to the moon and back, walked on the surface of another planet, came back to earth and felt that like there was something missing. It's not just one thing to be the astronaut, to be selected for the manned missions. Can you imagine? The pinnacle of the profession and said there was something missing. In it. I don't care how successful you are. I guarantee you, you never walked on the moon. I guarantee you. I don't care how high you rise in your profession. It will never be enough. It doesn't satisfy doesn't matter how successful, never. If you love technology, I can tell you right now, the iPhone 14 that came out last week, there will be a 15 next year. Come on, somebody. And they will make you hate the phone that you have 12 months from now. That is what they do. It will never be. Technology, I can, and I can assure you, a phone or a watch or whatever it is will not bring you happiness because I have lost my salvation many times because it does not work the way it's supposed to. Come on. It is made to make you unhappy. It is planned obsolescence. It, it will make you. And so if, we, if, if it's not technology, if cars is your thing and you buy that car, you finally save enough money to buy that dream car that you want. I promise you next year that company will change the grill. They will change the hood. They will change the interior. They will change the options and the colors that you can get. Why? Because they want to make you hate the car you just bought because you want to buy it. Even if you make enough money to buy a new model every single year, then you need a truck, right? And then you got to buy a vehicle for the track. And then you got to have a vehicle for the weekends. Then you got to have an off-road. You gotta, it will never be enough. If you love vehicles, there's no end to where the devil can take you down that path. Because it will never be enough. If you say, well, I don't like any of those. If you like real estate is your thing. And you got to have a bathroom for every bedroom in your house. Come on, somebody. Then you got to have bathrooms and bedrooms for people that don't even live with you. You just got to have, right? You got to, and then you got to get inside a gated community because you can't live out here with all these people. You got to be in there with all of those people. And then once you get in there, you got to have bathrooms and bedrooms. And then you realize you hate all the people in there. And so you got to have a gated community just for yourself. Keep all those people. It will never be enough. And we chase these things and we know in our heart of hearts that it won't be enough. How many of you have had that thing that if you could just have that, you would be happy? How many even remember where that thing is right now? Anybody? Anybody can? You could pinpoint. If I could just have that one thing, I could be happy. It's a trap. And we fall for it every single time. I've learned. I've learned with my own kids. Honestly, this idea, I've learned very quickly when they were younger and now that I have the three youngers, when we go to Walmart or Target and we walk down that toy aisle and that first aisle is, I don't know, it's RC cars or something. It's something, and they are like, this is the only thing I've ever wanted in my life. I have suddenly seen the light and I don't care about any of my other possessions. This thing, this RC car that's bigger than my truck in real life. Come on, somebody. Like a, this is the only, I have learned that if I say, let's just keep walking, let's just keep looking. And we go to aisle two. And it's like scooters and footballs and whatever other thing. Then nobody's remembering the RC car. This is now the only thing that I have ever wanted. This will make me happy. And then we're like in aisle three and it's Legos. And you get the idea. And it's like, I don't even remember. That's old time, Dad. That's, I don't remember that. This is what? This is. And it's a simple analogy. But we do it in our lives over and over and over. We think that's the thing that will make me happy. That's the thing that will give me completion. If I could just reach this pinnacle of my profession, then I would slow down because that's what I need to do. If I could just buy that one thing, then I would know that we're happy. Now we've made it. And I would slow and we live our entire lives chasing after more. And it's a trap of the enemy. It will never be enough. First Timothy says it this way. The Bible says it's a trap. 
I don't know how many different ways the Bible can say this, but it says it's a trap. First Timothy says, but people who long to be rich soon begin to do all kinds of wrong things to get money. How many know that's true? Things that hurt them and make them evil minded. And finally send them to hell itself. I don't know how many ways the Bible can warn us against this, that we would be so thick headed we wouldn't hear it. It says it's a trap. And here's a verse you've heard before. Watch this. It's Jesus speaking. Watch. He says, for the love of money. For the love of money. Paul's writing to Timothy and he's saying this. For the love of money is the first step toward all kinds of sins. Some people have even turned away from God because of their love for it. And as a result have pierced themselves with many sorrows. He's talking about Christians. He's saying some have even turned away from God because they love money. Some have even said no to the gift God gives because they love monies too much. I, I cannot make this as, as serious as the Bible has made this warning. He says, it turn away. Two things I want you to hear. First is the first step towards evil. Two things to see. First of all, money itself is not evil. Money is neutral, everybody. You decide if it's blessed or cursed by what you do with it and how you pursue it. That's the first thing out of this. You determine that thing. It's the love of money that will destroy your soul. If there are things... That you say, I cannot live without it. There are things that define you. It has taken the place of God in your life. And the pursuit of that actually becomes the gateway to all kinds of sin. And just an aside, you know why it's the love of money? You know why it's the love? It's because you don't even have to have it to be tripped up by it. Like you don't even have to have, we think, well, just those rich people that have money. They're the ones who have the love of money. You don't have to have any money at all to be ensnared by the love of it. It's quiet in this church today. Come on, somebody. It's just... To be ensnared by the love, to be because he's saying those who pursue it, they don't even have it yet, and they are tripped up by the love of money. They, they haven't even gotten it, but it has rooted its way so deep. They'll turn away from God. They'll turn away from everything. They'll be pierced with so many sorrows because they love it so much. And it has tripped them so many, so many. It's the first step toward all kinds of sins. In other words, you'll in your pursuit of money, you'll find yourself saying things like, well, I normally wouldn't be like this, but I just have to close this deal. Or I normally would never do this, but I just have to skirt the line on this occasion because I just have to make this thing happen. You'll find yourself, says a gateway to all kinds of sins, all kinds. And you will wake up one day and you will not recognize yourself because you have pursued it and you have changed anything you needed to change. You have done anything you needed to do. You have backstabbed, you have taught, you have lied, and cheated. you have done all these things that have attached to the love of money. And the Bible says it is a trap. Why? Because money makes a lousy God, everybody. It is the easiest thing to put in the place of God, but it makes a lousy God. It's the thing that, honestly, we default to. And so today, I just want to, as Paul is making this plea in chapter 4, as Paul is teaching us in 1 Timothy, as he's teaching us his things, I just want to hopefully save you from some of these things that maybe have pierced you with sorrows or maybe rescue you from it today. That this is where you find yourself, and maybe it's not too late to turn around. That we have worshipped possessions. And you're waking up and realizing that you have pursued a very false and lousy God. And pierce yourself with a whole lot of trouble. See, the reality is, Paul is saying, don't be your own source. Don't let your life be defined by the stuff that you possess. And he says, so if we're going to stop worrying, if we're going to stop thinking about what my provision is saying, we're going to start something else. And then we continue that verse. He says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. So if we're going to stop worrying, the next point, number two, jot it down if you're taking notes, we're going to start praying. 
we're going to stop worrying, we're going to start praying as a church. It's why we have the 21 days of prayer. It's why we have this idea of pray about everything. Because there is nothing too big to bring to God. Nothing too big for the power of God. And there is nothing too small for his concern that we would bring it to God. There's nothing too small that we can't involve God in the midst of it. And so we're going to pray about everything. Especially as his children. We go back to Matthew 6 where Jesus is talking. And he teaches this, this principle about prayer. He says, don't worry about these things. What we eat, what we wear, these things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly father already knows. And then he says, seek the kingdom of God above all else. Seek the kingdom of God and live righteously. Watch this. This is the kingdom of God. I love that this is is not the presence of God, not the power of God, not the person of God. It's the kingdom of God. A kingdom is authority. A kingdom is a set of governments. A kingdom is this actually way of doing life that's God's. This is the kingdom of God. That's why he says, and live righteously. It's why we pray that in the Lord's Prayer. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. This is what God would like to see. This is God's kingdom. And so when we pray, we are praying for the kingdom of God to come. And so prayer becomes then this submission. So prayer is this petition. It's this asking God, but prayer is also submission. And so John, if you're taking notes, prayer is not just letting your God know. Prayer is letting your way go. Prayer, there is petition in prayer. We bring our things before him. It says we pray about everything. But then it says your kingdom come. Your will be done. We say, God, I know I need to be in alignment with what you have for me. Your principles for this life. I want to be in walking in alignment with what God has for the purpose for my life. It's his kingdom that I'm seeking. I'm living righteously. I'm seeking the kingdom of God. Jesus modeled this in the garden. When he prayed that prayer, he said, if there was any other way, petition, any other way but the cross. If there's any other way but this thing in front of me. If there's any other way we can do this. Petition. But then he says, but nevertheless, your will be done. There's submission that comes from prayer that I think we have lost. We have our long list of letting our God know, but prayer is about coming in alignment with the kingdom of God. When we pray, when we pray, there is petition and there is submission. That we're going to be in alignment with the kingdom. The Bible says, you want to have joy, put God first. I'm going to bring my request. And then verse six, he says, tell him what you need. And then watch this and thank him for all that he's done. You need to begin to rehearse the blessings of God in your life. You say, well, why? Because the easiest way to have faith for what God will do is to see what God has already done. It's an Old Testament principle that God looked at the children of Israel and he said, you need to talk about the miracles in Egypt. You need to talk about how you were brought out of deliverance. Talk about how there was manna in the wilderness. Talk about how God has blessed you every step of the way. Set up stones and pillars to tell your children about it. Because he's saying, I'm going to give you the promised land. But you can't know where you're going until you remember where you've been. He's telling the children of Israel, I'm going to bless you and you've got to have faith for that. Because they're going to have faith to take the promised land. So he's saying, remember what God has done. Remember the provision and the miracles. And we as children of God need to remember the blessings God has done in our lives. Remember those things. Quickest way to build that faith you need for what God will do is remember what he's already done. We've got to have that belief in our past. We've got to remember what God has done for us. To what end? Verse 7. What are we working towards? He says, then you'll experience God's peace, which exceeds anything you could possibly understand. And his peace will guard your hearts. Guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Guards our hearts that we would navigate. We would never again set our hearts on riches or on money. Never again pursue the possessions. And then it says, and guard your minds in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus said stuff is what dominates the thoughts of unbelievers. Their minds are are caught up in stuff and more and achieving and money and whatever it is. But he says, not so you. And so he guards our hearts, our desires, and then he guards our minds. And so number three, if we're going to fix this thing, we've got to fix our thinking. 
If you're going to fix this, we got we got to stop worrying. We're going to start praying, but we have to fix our thinking on how we view our perspective of how we view this stuff. Because you and I have been taught our whole lives in this culture that money is the end goal of this. That if you can just amass enough, it's what makes you significant. It's your safety net. It's your security. It's all of these things. We have been taught that that is what we need to pursue. And so we got to fix our thought process and how we view this. Because the world will tell you if you tithe or if you give generously to somebody who's in need, or if you reach out and give in your life, then that's just crazy. The world will look at that and say, there's no way you can get ahead by living a life of generosity. There's no way you're going to get and partially they are right. You can't get ahead in their view. But it's not their view that matters. We're living for the kingdom of God. And so they'll say, well, it's backwards. It's upside down. Doesn't make sense. And so Paul says in verse eight, you got to fix your thinking. If we're going to do that, watch this. He says, so now fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about those things that are excellent and worthy of praise. He said, we're going to fix our thinking. Here's your new filter, everybody. We're not going to think about things that are selfish or self-serving. He says, think about things that are pure. Think about things that are lovely. Think about things that are worth that, about the blessing. Because listen to me, real, real life, the world would love to tell you that joy and happiness and real life is found by the stuff that you own or the money that you have or the vacations that you take or however everybody did. That's what joy really is. But Jesus says it differently. Watch this in Luke 12. He says, beware. Guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Life is not measured. Real life isn't measured by the stuff that we own. We got to change our thinking, church. We, we've got to change our thinking. I, I could probably stand up here and read till the night gets late. How many verses have this warning? This guard yourself. And Jesus is saying, beware. Life is real life is not by the stuff that you own. Now, I don't know about your family. But mine, my family, we are, if there's one area we are really, really bad in, it is the gift shop. Come on, somebody. So we are going to air our grievances this morning. And if there's one thing that we are just bad, my kids, we love, we are suckers for a good gift shop. Doesn't matter if we are in the museum or we are in the airport or we are at the zoo. We are looking for the, we don't go on vacation. We go looking for gift shops. Come on. We just, that is our, our tactic in life. And so my kids love it. They don't even know what they want to buy. They just know I got to get something because this is what's going to make this trip memorable. This is what we're going to, we're going to, I got to buy something in this place. And so we are, like I said, we are suckers for a good gift shop. It is our thing. And so one time we're on a layover in an airport and my kids, we're in the gift shop. Come on, somebody. We're just looking around, just kind of kill some time. And I remember this clearly because both of my sons appear from different directions. Both of them appear holding ukuleles. Come on, somebody. Just... They appear before me in an airport. I don't know where they found them. I don't know what back room they pulled them out of. Both of them holding And it's like, guys, we are not buying. They don't even fit in the suitcases. Come on. Like, it's not even. We're not buying ukuleles. Like, guys, we're not doing. That is not what this trip is about. Like, I bought airline tickets. I bought stuff. I've been screaming at you to shut up and run all day long. We're not buying. That's what real life is about. That's the memories they're going to remember. Like, we are not buying these ukuleles. I'm not buying a $50 ukulele I can buy for $4 somewhere else. Come on, somebody. Because, like, I, I just, we're in an airport. It's not happening. Real life is not about the stuff that we buy. Completely unrelated. If you are in the market for two barely used ukuleles, please <laughs> come and see me after service. <laughs> I just thought I'd throw that out there. It's just a <laughs> Life is not about the stuff that we possess. Life is not about buying the ukulele in the gift shop, everybody. That's not what real life is. 
Honestly, if I could just, I just give you some advice. And this is just on the practical end for your vacations. It's not about the stuff you buy. It's about the time you spend with the people you're with. Christian life is not about the stuff that we own or the things we possess. It's about reaching others with the gospel. It's about trusting God every step of the way. And too often times we have swapped out what sits on the throne of our life with money. And it is a false God and it will leave you in a world of hurt every single time. And so we're going to unplug from the world system. We're going to say, I'm going to fix my thinking. I'm not going to pursue that thing. I'm going to stop worrying. I'm going to start praying. I'm going to fix my thinking. But guess what? None of that happens overnight. This isn't like a one-time decision and then you're just fixed for the rest of your life. Watch this, verse number nine. He says, you got to keep putting into practice. He's finishing up the letter here. We're coming to the end. And he says, but keep putting into practice all you have learned and received from me. So joy in your circumstances, week one. Joy even in the midst of people that are trying to hurt you, week number two. Joy apart from religiousness, week number three. And now joy apart from our possessions. He said, keep putting into practice everything you heard and saw me doing. And then the God of peace will be with you. Paul is saying, put this thing into practice. And so number four, as we close out this series, we got to keep practicing. If we are going to stop worrying, we are going to start praying, we're going to fix our thinking. We got to do it on a consistent basis. We're going to keep practicing because it's a lifetime process. Because all of us, truth is, all of us this week will be tempted to put money back on the throne of our lives. Honestly, this week we'll be tempted to be our own provision, to be our own source, our own security. It will be a lifetime struggle. But Paul is saying we're going to stop worrying. We're going to start praying. We're going to, we're going to honestly fix our thinking. And we're going to keep practicing. And so what do we do? What do we do when we, even when we fall this week? We're not going to condemn ourselves or feel guilty. We're going to get back up and keep practicing. We're going to keep putting into practice these things. What do we do when we let our circumstances? We're going to get back up and we're going to keep practicing. When we allow people to get in, we've, we've tried to push out, but we allow them to get in and to hurt us. We're going to keep practicing. We're going to stop worrying. We're going to start praying. We're going to fix our thinking. So Paul says, repeat the process. And then he wraps up back where we started today. Verse number 12 he says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. He said, I've taught you now. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty. He says, now I've shared you that I've learned the secret of being plenty, having abundance, and I have learned the secret of facing hunger. I have learned abundance and I have learned need. And then the verse that everybody knows, he said, I could do all things through him who strengthens me. You ever think what Paul was talking about when he says that verse? This is it. He's talking about being content in every scenario, having joy apart from possessions, having joy apart. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And here's the promise, the promise of the chapter as he ends the letter, verse 19 so we close and it says that this same God who takes care of me. You ever think about that? Paul's sitting in prison saying the God who takes care of me. The same God who takes care of God, uh, Paul in prison is the same God that takes care of your every need. Same God who takes care of Paul in prison. Same God who gave manna in the wilderness. The same God who set them free from me. Same God who raised Jesus from the dead. The same God that watches over. The same God that freed Paul. The same God that was in the early church. The same God that watches over us. It says, the same God who takes care of me will supply all of your needs from his glorious riches. I love that it says it's from his riches, everybody. From his glorious riches. And so your provision and your dependence on him, it's not dependent on your accomplishments and your significance and the money that you have. No, it says it comes from his glorious riches that brings provision into your life. So it's not based on your performance. 
Not based on your significance, not based on your accomplishments, not based on the economy you live in, not based on what happens around the world, not based on the political pressures, not based on this world we live in, not based on anything else. It says it's based on the same God. The God who breathed this world into existence. That God will supply all your needs according to his glorious riches which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Because listen to me, church, your life, your joy, our significance, our bedrock, our purpose, our existence always has and always will be based on Jesus. Every head bowed as we close today. Father, I just want to pray. I want to pray before we go, God. There are so many times, Lord, if we have put money on the throne of our life, if we have pursued a false and lousy God, God, we pray for repentance today, for forgiveness. Every head bowed, church, I want to pray before we go that we just have a chance to start this process of fixing our thinking, that we have a chance to dethrone some things that we have set up as so important. Honestly, things that we can't take with us anyway. And we have put so much significance and time and effort into things that are worthless in light of eternity. Before we pray that prayer, though, there are some of you who are here today. And maybe you've already put it as first place in your life. And maybe like First Timothy talked about, you have seen the pain that comes when money is your God. Maybe there's something else that's kept you far from him. I don't know what it is today, but you're here, you're watching online. You say, well, I'm so far from God. There's no way he could ever rescue me. And I've done all the things you said today, all the wrong things. I've done them all and I know the futility in them. But I don't see any hope. And so before we go any further in this service, I just want to talk to you. And this is our opportunity as a church to let you know something that we hold very, very dear to our heart. And that is no matter what anybody else has ever told you, no matter what any other scenario or situation or background you have come out of, no matter what hurts or things have been done to you, no matter what you have done, God loves you. He loves you. And listen to me, he wants you. For some of you, you need to hear that he still wants you. He's still waiting for you. His grace is enough for you. His forgiveness is big enough for you. Listen to me, every single one of us have sinned against God. The Bible says nobody, nobody escapes that. Every one of us have sinned against him. Every one of us have broken the law of God. Every single one of us. But because of Jesus, there is forgiveness available for us. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, that he died in our place to pay the price for our sins that we could never pay. And so if that's you today and you say, I'm too far gone, I, I've run too far, I've done all that you don't know, my back. I don't care about that. I care that Jesus loves you and he's forgiven you and he can save you. But it starts with a prayer of repentance and a prayer of submission. That we accept what he did on the cross. That we repent of our sins. And I promise you, you can be forgiven and set free. 
And so right now, we as a church, we have dedicated ourselves to pray this prayer with every single person who wants to pray it. If you say, that's me, you say, I want to start my life right. I want to accept forgiveness. I want my eternity to be secure in him. Right now, we would be our honor to pray with you. I'm not asking you to join some religious thing. I'm not going to bring you to some back room. I'm not looking to embarrass you. There's a time to go public. We would love to baptize you next week to have that decision if you'd like to make that public. But right now, you make a decision between you and your Savior. Right now, you make a decision about your eternity. Right now, you make a decision. Are you going to pay for your sins or you accept the forgiveness that Jesus bought at the cross of Calvary? Every head bowed, every eye closed. If that's you, I would love to pray this prayer with you. We're going to pray it as a church. But say these words. Say, Jesus, forgive me. I repent for all of my sin, for all of my mistakes. I surrender to you. I believe you died on a cross. I believe you rose again. And I make you the Lord of my life. Now, Father, I thank you for the blessings you have given us. But Lord, let us never fixate our lives upon them. Let them never take the place of God in our lives, Lord. Let us never be hindered or pierced by sorrows, Lord. Let us fix our thinking and our perspective today. Help us to remember that you are our provider, that you are our source. God, let our lives never be determined by our stuff. Lord, set us free. Lord, let us heed the warnings before it's too late. Lord, let us see when we've gone off. God, let us just see when our priorities are skewed. God, open our eyes. We want to be people of God. We want to follow you. We want to seek your kingdom first. And so help us, God, to be free of this, Lord, this mentality of more of stuff, of money, of possessions. Lord, we thank you that you are changing our perspective, that you are helping us to seek your kingdom come. Help us this week. Help us, Lord, in our lives. Help us to pursue you with all that we have. And we'll give you all of the glory and all of the praise. We pray it all in Jesus' name. And all God's church said amen and amen. Come on, church, can we put our hands together for what God has done today?